Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Christy Thornton. Today, we're looking at the role that Mexico played in the Cold War and how the Cold War was experienced in Mexico. When former Mexican President Lázaro Cárdenas traveled to Havana in 1959 to celebrate the triumph of the Cuban Revolution, he stood shoulder to shoulder with Fidel Castro in front of a crowd of thousands, providing the early sketches of an image of unquestioned Mexican support for revolutionary Cuba that would persist over the next few decades. Mexico was the only country in the Western Hemisphere that defied the United States and refused to break off relations with Castro's government. And successive presidential administrations in Mexico cited their own country's revolutionary legacy in their enduring professions of support. But the story told in Renata Keller's fascinating new book, Mexico's Cold War, Cuba, the United States, and the Legacy of the Mexican Revolution, out in 2015 from Cambridge University Press, paints a rather more complicated story one in which the leaders of all three countries craft official public narratives contradicted by their actions behind the scenes, and one in which the optics of foreign policy are undercut by the realities of domestic politics. Using now-restricted Mexican security files, U.S. government documents, and Cuban foreign ministry sources, Mexico's Cold War details how the Cuban Revolution reverberated within Mexico to produce an often contradictory and frequently repressive politics that ultimately resulted in an internal dirty war, one that has parallels in the Mexico of today. Renata Keller is an assistant professor of international affairs at the Frederick S. Party School of Global Studies at Boston University, where she teaches classes on Latin American politics and U.S.-Latin American relations. I was so glad to have the chance to talk to her about this new book. Renata Keller, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So first, can you tell our listeners how you came to do this project on the relationship between Mexico and Cuba? What led to this research? Uh, sure. So I started recent, researching this project my second year of graduate school. And when I started graduate school, I really wanted to research Argentina. And I had lived for a year in Argentina teaching English. And I had found this amazing story about um, a bishop who had been assassinated during the dirty war there. And so that was my, my original research idea. And I tried presenting it at a few conferences and um, talking to various advisors about it. And it just seemed like nobody was interested in the Catholic Church in Argentina <laughs> at the time. In hindsight, now they are, thanks to our, our new Pope. But at the time, uh, I just wasn't getting much traction with that. And so I started uh, just poking around on the National Security Archive website, looking for interesting articles, um, you know, things I hadn't heard of before, uh, and I came across Kate Doyle's article on Mexican-Cuban relations. And I just thought it was fascinating. And it was something I really wanted to follow up on. Um, and she wrote a couple of articles on the, for the website. And using mostly sources, I think, if I remember correctly, from the LBJ library. And so 
I thought, well, this is fascinating. Um, I wonder if there are Mexican sources on this or Cuban sources. I wonder what they would have to say about this relationship. And, and that's really what got me going. So one of the things that really, I think, sets this book apart from some previous histories of this time and and the way we've understood this era is that you not only use U.S. sources and Mexican sources, but you were able to get access to some Cuban sources as well. So I wonder if you can talk about what the Cuban sources were that you were able to use, how you got access to them, and, and what sort of new perspectives you think they brought to the story. Yeah, that that part was, was fun. It was, it was a process of trial and error. So... First time I went to Cuba to try and research this project, uh, I planned a three-week exploratory trip, and I was in contact with various people there. And then I got to Cuba, and um, they told me the foreign ministry archives were closed, that they were being moved. I don't know why they didn't tell me that ahead of time. (laughs) Uh, And then also, when you get there, you you arrive with... uh, a visitor or a tourist visa, and then you have to get that processed into a research visa. And thanks to just various problems like typewriters breaking, I think was one of the things they told me. It took them two and a half of my three weeks to process my visa. And so in the meantime, I couldn't use any other archives either. (laughs) And so (laughs) that visit was incredibly frustrating. Uh, and I'd kind of given up on the idea of using Cuban sources after that visit. But then uh, maybe two years later, I heard from my, at that point, former advisor, Jonathan Brown, who was also working on a project on Cuba, that the Foreign Ministry Archives had opened finally. Uh, he had heard from Aaron Moulton. And so, you know, through this kind of chain of communication, I, I heard that, you know, maybe there's hope after all. And so I quickly booked another trip to Cuba and um, and it was just night and day. Everything was extremely easy the second time around. They they processed my visa the same day. They even brought it to me at the archive. Uh, the people who I worked with at the Foreign Ministry Archive were incredibly helpful, Eduardo Valido especially, um, just making as much available as possible and, and in as a timely manner as possible. So I was able to look at it was all in the foreign ministry and what they have there it's organized by country and they have the the reports that their embassies and consulates sent back to the headquarters in Havana and so I looked at um, all of the things they still had from Mexico and it's it's funny because the boxes there all say ordinario on them <laughs> and, and I asked you know, what that meant and whether I could see the, the extraordinario documents. And they told me absolutely not. <laughs> so it's still limited. It's, it's definitely um, not completely declassified by any means, but there are some interesting gems in there. Right. And so um, it's one of the real central concerns of the book is how the legacy of the Mexican Revolution and the political mobilization, the use of that legacy really shapes how the Cold War uh, is seen in Mexico, is is executed in Mexico. So by the time we get into the 1950s, what, what was the legacy of the Mexican Revolution, especially as it had come to be, as you detail in your first chapter, institutionalized in a political party in the 1940s? Yeah. So as you point out, in the first chapter, I argued that, you know, by the time of the Cuban Revolution, the Mexican Revolution was really more myth 
than fact. And it had been this idea, all of these promises that were made, especially in the Constitution of 1917, you know, of, of land and equality and democracy, um, had been slowly eroded, especially since the time of Cardenas. And um, the people, the groups that gained power through the revolution, rather than distributing um, power and and land and all these things, uh, really consolidated and institutionalized their power through various organizations that I go into detail, um, including the PRI, um, and through various other means, like um, manipulation of the media, uh, things like that. And so... By the 1950s, and really by the 1940s, uh, but especially by the 1950s, you start to see a lot of criticism of this fact. And this, people are um, looking back at the, all of the uh, language that the Mexican government is using of the revolution. And they're saying, well, <laughs> you really aren't revolutionary anymore. You aren't delivering upon these promises anymore. And so there was very much a sense in this period, the 1940s, the 1950s, the government is is using this legacy as a kind of legitimation at home? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. As a way to appear that they were still revolutionary, well, as a way to justify their power, but um, really turning their backs on and everything that revolution had originally stood for. So one kind of crucial institution in your story is a Mexican intelligence service that historians of Mexico will be very familiar with, but maybe people who, who research elsewhere in the region or who aren't Latin Americanists won't necessarily have heard of. It's um, a department called the Department of Federal Security, the DFS. And um, this is an institution whose records form a big chunk of the source base for your book. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about what the DFS was and the role of it as an institution in mid-century Mexico and maybe how it also figures into this history of relations between Mexico and Cuba. So the DFS would be, I guess, the closest equivalent that people would be familiar with is the FBI, uh, but with a little bit of like CIA thrown in. And so the DFS was in charge of monitoring everything that was going on within Mexico, both uh, amongst domestic groups and foreigners. Uh, they, they kept watch on individuals and organizations and events, and they reported um, directly to the minister of the interior, who would then report directly to to the president. He was kind of the president's right-hand man in a lot of ways. And it was um, supposedly the most elite intelligence organization because there were numerous intelligence organizations operating with Mex- within Mexico at that time. And so in addition to collecting information, uh, they also were responsible for conducting operations sometimes uh, to kind of favor certain groups or undermine groups or target individuals. Uh, and so they, they had various functions, but primarily for my purposes, especially their most important function was collecting information. And so they would write uh, reports about everything and everyone uh, and then, you know, submit them to the Ministry of the Interior. And all of these reports uh, are, they are, they were available for about 10 years in the early 2000s. Uh, they're still extant. They're still within the archives, but recently they've, they've started classifying them again a little bit more, reclassifying them. Uh, 
But while they were open, I was able to to use them. And they're extremely well organized. They're organized by by group or by individual. And so what I found so interesting about these documents is it's a way to get into uh, the, the head, really, of the government to see the decision-making process. They, you know, they weren't always reporting accurately, but it's, it was the government's best source of information about what was going on in the country. And so I think it's an interesting way to, to look behind the scenes at what the biggest decision-makers thought was going on. And yeah, I've heard you talk um, in in the past about sort of how to read these documents as a historian, sort of how you are able to sort of read between the lines, combine them with other kinds of sources. As you said, they're not always necessarily an accurate reflection of what's going on on the ground. And I wonder, since you also read similar kinds of sources in Cuba, what sort of strategies you employed to try to get through? And then obviously U.S. sources as well, which have a particular kind of perspective. What kind of sources did you kind of, I mean, what kind of strategies were you able to employ to kind of put these things together and and read against the grain in these documents to figure out what what was actually happening on the ground Mm -hmm. when it came to these various groups and movements? Well, it's tough sometimes. Um, I think these are what I use for general historians tools, right? Trying to gather as many perspectives as possible, as many differing sources on each event or individual uh, that I was researching to, to compare them against each other, to read them against each other. Uh, and always reading with a skeptical eye to say, okay, you know, does this make sense in the context of, of what I know, in the context of, of what other sources are saying, what other historians have found? Um, and then, you know, acknowledging the times when you just don't know, when there's not enough information, and being as honest about that as possible, and being as, as clear about the limits of the sources as well as their potential. So I do want to get into sort of what came out of these documents, what some of the fears and understandings were that were coming from the Mexican government. I want to step back maybe just a little bit and get a bigger picture. So after the triumph of the Cuban Revolution in 1959, we know that former Mexican President Lázaro Cárdenas, who you mentioned, who's a leading figure on the left in Mexico and is seen as kind of having consolidated the gains of the Mexican Revolution during the 1930s, he, Cárdenas, travels to Havana and kind of stands with Fidel Castro to express his support for Cuba's revolution. And we've long kind of understood this show of support to be reflective of a broader policy of support by Mexico for the new Cuban government. But in this book, you really uncover a story that's more complicated than that. So I wonder if you can describe how the Mexican state under President Adolfo López Mateos in this early period of the Cuban Revolution, how they react to, for example, Cárdenas going to Cuba to stand with Fidel Castro. Yeah, Cárdenas is such a fascinating figure in this in this whole story because he is so much the embodiment of the Mexican Revolution for, for large portions of the population. And then when he's one of the first people to, to really embrace the Cuban Revolution, it puts the Mexican government in a really awkward position. Uh, and so López Mateos, who's president from, from 58 to 64, so during the Cuban Revolution, um, is kind of caught off guard and has to, it's more of a, a reactive uh, stance than any sort of proactive response. He has to respond to, to Cardenas's enthusiasm for the Cuban Revolution. He has to respond to all the enthusiasm that he sees amongst uh, large portions of the Mexican population, though, though by no means everyone. Uh, and so 
especially when it comes to Cardenas, he there's a limit to what Lopez Mateos can do. Um, and so I actually opened my book with the Bay of Pigs invasion and with, you know, Cardenas attempting to fly to Cuba uh, to, to help defend the island. And at that point, Lopez Mateos steps in and he says, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to allow this. And he calls, you know, Cardenas into his office a few days later, and they have this really heated debate about, you know, what is Cardenas doing? Is he overstepping his role as a former president? You know, is he falling into the, the communist trap? Uh, and so I think this is when Lopez Mateos is really trying to, to balance things and to avoid letting Cardenas regain too much power through his defense of the Cuban revolution. And so Lopez Mateos has to kind of one up him in order to avoid losing out to Cardenas. And so in that way, do you see Lopez Mateo's sort of public embrace of the Cuban revolution as entirely about that kind of domestic political calculation and the, the need to be seen as part of a revolutionary legacy? I think so. I think it was a largely a domestic decision on his part. He um, himself, he kind of described himself as being a leftist. He had lost a lot of leftist credential, though, very early on in his presidency by repressing uh, the railroad workers movement, which happened before the Cuban Revolution um, or started before the Cuban Revolution and continued afterward. And so uh, I think he was trying to regain his own his own reputation. He was trying to regain the reputation of the Mexican government in general, which had been receiving a lot of criticism over the, the previous decades. And so I think it had much more to do with with internal reasons than any sort of, you know, legitimate sympathy with Cuba or or anything like that. So you mentioned earlier the sort of broad enthusiasm within the Mexican population for the Cuban revolution in the immediate aftermath. So um, who were the people and the groups who were really rallying to the cause of Cuba and how did the government react to them? So it was mostly or largely people who had already started criticizing the Mexican government in the 40s and 50s. So similar groups, people like students, um, unions, intellectuals, uh, kind of members of the opposition media. And so these are the ones who who most rapidly embrace the Cuban revolution. And, and immediately they start holding rallies and when the Cubans send a delegation called Operation Truth to to visit and to tour Latin America, they you know they welcome this Operation Truth tour with with open arms, and they hold all kinds of events in their honor. And so it's these groups who um, generally were on the left of the political spectrum, but also centrist groups. I would I would say as well, uh, they're the ones who immediately respond most positively to the Cuban Revolution. And does the Mexican government see that as a threat? I think so, because these were people who had already shown that they were potential opponents, or there were groups who had already shown that potential to criticize the government. And so they were the groups most at risk of um, of undermining the Mexican government's authority and undermining this revolutionary myth that they, they clung to so desperately. Right. Um, so one of the most fascinating aspects of your research is uncovering not just um, how the Mexican state is sort of has this kind of what you call a Janus-faced 
uh, policy towards Cuba, right? That they say one thing publicly, but that they're acting different in private. But you find a similar thing going on within Cuba. The Cuban government is very much publicly, you know, embracing the legacy of the Mexican Revolution, but in private um, has its doubts about the actual revolutionary nature of that. So can you talk about that a little bit from both ends, what the disjuncture is but between both what both governments are saying publicly versus what they're actually doing privately vis-a-vis the other government? Yeah. So on the part of Mexico, while they're, you know, defending Cuba's right to self-determination and non-intervention and, and famously Mexico is the only country that refuses to cut relations with Cuba by 1964, they refuse to cut air contact with Cuba, the, the only country in the Americas that refuses to do so. At the same time, they they work around these rules in ways that actually implement the intent of such actions. And so they they make it a lot more difficult for people to get visas to actually travel to Cuba. They cut down on imports from Cuba significantly. Imports fall to almost nothing throughout the 1960s. Uh, and so they they implement the kind of the ethos of all of these sanctions without publicly acknowledging that. And so there's a lot of memos uh, that I found in U.S. files where the U.S. government is like, they, they recognize that. And they that's part of the reason why the United States is okay with Mexico's position, because they recognize that it, it is a very Janus-based policy, that it's the Mexican government is doing everything they can short of publicly breaking with Cuba. And the Cubans realize that as well. <laughs> and so in the memos I read in the Cuban files, the reports that people are sending back to Havana from the Cuban embassy, you know, they're, they're full of criticism of the Mexican government and, you know, saying that the Mexicans have betrayed their revolution and that they are counter-revolutionary and they're bourgeois and they um, are, you know, allies of the Americans. And there's just so much criticism of the Mexican government in these private files. But publicly, you know, all Castro and his speeches would, you know, when he would, you know, denounce the Organization of American States for things like, you know, the cutting relations or the embargo, he would always be careful to exempt Mexico and to really, to really emphasize the special relationship between Mexico and Cuba. And you see that even today. <laughs> There's all this rhetoric of this special relationship between Mexico and Cuba. Right. So one of the things that you really stress is um, the way in which domestic politics are just as important as the various kinds of foreign policy considerations in determining how Mexico reacts at various points in the advance of the Cuban Revolution. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what role the Cuban Revolution, what impact it has on domestic politics in Mexico, and does that change over the course of the period under study how does the um, the specter of Cuba really change domestic politics within within Mexico? Well, it's extremely divisive in Mexico. So, so even immediately, while you have these groups I talked about before embracing the Cuban Revolution and celebrating it, you also have people on the other side of the political spectrum saying, you know, this could be a really dangerous precedent. And what if it happens in Mexico? Does this mean we could have a new revolution in Mexico? That could be extremely dangerous. And so these initial reactions uh, of either, you know, celebration or fear just snowball over time. And 
you start to see more and more events like the Bay of Pigs invasion um, widening these divisions within Mexican society. And people start to form more organizations. Uh, it, it almost inspires uh, kind of a new renaissance of political activity in Mexico, especially in the early 1960s. You start to see a lot of new political organizations taking form, not only in response to the Cuban Revolution, but it's part of it. It's a large part of it. Um, and so you see this interesting combination of, of domestic issues like um, a new campesino group advocating for more land and for more independence to, to represent themselves. Uh, but they're also, you know, they look to Cuba and they say, look at all these great agrarian reforms Cuba is doing. <laughs> we should have legitimate agrarian reform here. Uh, and so people start to see Cuba as an example, both beneficially or as a warning. And throughout the course of the 1960s, uh, these positions and these divisions, the positions harden, the divisions widen, and you start to see the level of violence increasing. That's definitely something um, I want to talk to as we get into the um, what you really call the transition from the Cold War to the Dirty War in Mexico. And, and I, I do want to talk about that. First, I want to stay kind of in the in the early 1960s period, um, as Cuba sort of declares that they will uh, align themselves with the socialists, they will become socialists, begin to align themselves with the Soviet Union. Um, we have the United States, as you mentioned, call for the rest of the hemisphere to kind of break off relations with Cuba. And as you said, Mexico is the only country um, that actually does this. They are the only country that do not sign on to this OAS resolution and um they're the only ones who really resist this U.S. pressure. So I wonder um, both how and why, you mentioned this a little bit, but why does Mexico resist this Cold War imperative and how do they get away with it? I think, uh, again, both the answer to both the questions is domestic politics. And so I think for the Mexican government, they perceive the biggest threat coming domestically. They don't see Cuba as the major threat. Uh, if you look at the intelligence reports, the ones about internal groups and individuals are much more alarmist than any of their reports about Cuba. Uh, and so the Mexican leaders decide that their biggest concern is domestic groups and the way to keep these, especially leftist domestic groups, under control and to keep them satisfied and to some respect is to maintain relations with Cuba, that it makes them appear more revolutionary. It's a, an easy way to kind of curry favor without actually making any reforms uh, at home. And so this is a calculation that Mexican leaders make, and it's also what they tell the United States. And, and so you see this also in U.S. reports uh, of conversations that they have with Mexican leaders that they, Lopez Mateos and others managed to convince uh, first Eisenhower and then Kennedy uh, that, that this is really important to Mexican stability that they need to do this, uh, that cutting relations with Cuba can endanger Mexico's stability. And when it comes down to it, you know, maintaining Mexico's stability is more important to the United States than, than the crusade to really completely isolate Castro. Mm, interesting. So this is an explicit strategy. Mexican diplomats are explicitly saying this to the United States, that we are going to maintain this kind of public profile even as we continue to help you gather intelligence and do these mm -hmm. other sorts of things. Exactly. And they argue that in addition, in, by maintaining relations with Cuba, 
they are better positioned to help collect information on Castro's activities, which is true. Right. So you have this really interesting triangulation that I think really complicates our understanding of how the Cold War in Latin America was waged, right? Because we have sort of the the two exemplars of the Cold War Latin American struggle, the United States on one side, Cuba on the other. We have Mexico in this kind of interesting position in between. And it seems that you're telling a story that is just much more complicated than the than the narrative of the kind of um, outright sort of ideological contest than we might have been told before. Yeah, exactly. And I think maybe that's the reason that until now, Mexico's kind of been left out of a lot of Cold War narratives because it doesn't really fit into any of these um, clear ideological camps. It was in the book, I I described them as being both friend and foe to Castro. Um, They are certainly a U.S. ally. While at the same time, they had this room to maneuver and to sometimes resist U.S. led endeavors. And so it does complicate our idea of the, of these simple divisions based on, on ideology or based on, each country's history. It's um, Mexico is such an interesting case because it, it really it differs from a lot of the patterns we've seen before in Cold War history. So, um, as you mentioned before, as as the kind of 1960s wear on, and we go from the regime of Lopez Mateos to that of Diaz Ordaz, um, the repre- the state repression on the part of the Mexican government is going to ramp up. Um, and the state is going to increasingly crack down on these internal groups over fear of communist infiltration, et cetera. So can you talk about how you see that being carried out, this kind of internal part of the Cold War that is actually where the, the Mexican Cold War really takes place? Despite the fact that we have this kind of very public stance about Cuba, you do you did mention this increasing repression and violence domestically that happens as we move in through the 1960s. Sure. And I, the person I see at the center of this is, is Gustavo Diaz Ordaz, who becomes president after Lopez Mateos. Previously, he had served as minister of the interior under Lopez Mateos. So he's the one who's reading um, or he's receiving, I assume, reading some of them, uh, all of these intelligence reports about internal threats. He's the one who's making a lot of the decisions about what to do about these internal threats. Um, and so throughout the 1960s, you start to see in the intelligence documents more and more warnings about communism, more and more warnings about guerrilla groups. And then you also see, in addition to reports about them, you do see guerrilla groups emerging in Mexico. And so it wasn't all imagination on the part of these intelligence agents. You know, there was some fact behind it. And so uh, I really think it's it's Diaz Ordaz who's at the center of this. And he overreacts, but for understandable reasons, based on the information he has available, he sees Mexico is being at war and his perception that Mexico is at war then in turn makes it a reality. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about where these, these guerrilla groups fit into this fear? Um, You mentioned that there guerrilla groups emerge at this time. This is a literature that we know something about sort of um, mainly. I think a lot of research has been done on rural guerrilla groups throughout Mexico that emerge, but you also speak a little bit about, some of the urban guerrilla groups that emerge at this time. So um, 
this is not, as you said, just a kind of specter haunting the Mexican government. These groups really exist. So are they at all related to Cuba? Does the Cuban revolution impact what these groups are doing? It does. It More than anything, it, it provides inspiration. It provides an example of you have this whole, the whole mythos of the Cuban revolution starting, you know, from the small core of, you know, Fidel and his 12 disciples in the Sierra Maestro, which, you know, it wasn't really, <laughs> they, they actually had a lot of support elsewhere. But this idea that a small core, a FOCO can, can launch a revolution that can be successful and o- overturn the power structures and, and start a whole new society, it, it's really inspirational for a lot of people. And it gives them hope that, you know, even with a small group, if they're dedicated enough, they can really make change in their society. Uh, and so I think it's, it's the example of Cuba more than anything else. But a lot of what they're addressing are, are internal issues, are domestic issues. It's their own dissatisfaction with their, with their government, with their opportunities in life, with the inequality that they see in Mexico. And so it's, uh, it's a combination of, you know, this external inspiration, but also a lot of uh, internal discontent. Mm-hmm. And was there fear that the Cubans were kind of directly supplying aid in the form of money or arms or any of those things? Did you find that in the document? Yeah, there were a lot of reports in the Mexican intelligence archive of, you know, Cubans providing, especially training, um, more than anything else, training groups within Mexico or, or They had reports about Mexicans traveling to Cuba for training and the Cubans were training people. We we don't know for sure whether they were training Mexicans. I I don't want to say for sure. Yes or no. But they they did have guerrilla training schools in Cuba. Other Latin American uh, people from other Latin American countries did travel there, many of them through Mexico or or other routes. Uh, And so it was possible that 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 was going on. Uh, there was also there were reports about um, getting weapons or supplies or information, especially through the Cuban embassy. They were very suspicious about the Cuban embassy and what people there were doing. Um, I want to take a brief detour because there's a fascinating story in your book that I, I think everyone who reads it, it catches their attention. And this is um, the story around um Lee Harvey Oswald fleeing to Mexico after the assassination of Kennedy. Can you talk about that and the involvement of the Cubans, the the suspicions around that and sort of how that all gets resolved? Yeah. So that was a really interesting story for me too. I, I had to kind of limit myself because you could just spend a whole lifetime researching the Kennedy assassination. But uh, so Lee Harvey Oswald, before he assassinated Kennedy, had traveled to Mexico and it was unclear exactly what he was trying to do. But he he first goes to the Cuban embassy and he says he needs a trans a transport visa or a transfer visa, something like that, so that he could go to the Soviet Union. And the Cuban embassy is, um, you know, they respond somewhat, uh, you know, they, they don't really trust him. They, they don't know who this guy is or what he's doing. And so they say, okay, well, you need to show us your, your visa for the Soviet Union. We can't just take your word for it. And so he goes back and forth um, a couple of times to the Soviet embassy, back to the Cuban embassy, never ends up getting the visa that he's looking for. Um, he spends a couple of days total in Mexico City trying to get this visa, trying to get to Cuba, um, doesn't succeed, and then eventually goes back to the United States. And this is all just kind of a blip until he assassinates Kennedy. Um, 
And then immediately, you know, people realize that he had been in Mexico. They start looking back through these records and there's, um, there's evidence, there's recordings of him speaking to Cuban embassy officials. Uh, and so it, it raises this question of, you know, was, was this the entire extent of his contact? Like, did he just go there and try to get a visa and fail? Or had there been more extensive collaboration between Oswald and the Cubans or the Soviets? Uh, and, and this very quickly uh, spins out of control or it threatens to spin out of control in, in the investigation. And uh, Johnson especially is terrified that this will end up revealing some sort of Cuban complicity in Kennedy's assassination that will then drag the United States into war with Cuba and then the Soviet Union. And so he's terrified that this could mean World War III. And so Johnson and others try and clamp down on the investigation and say, look, let's be really careful about this. We don't want to, you know, set off any alarm bells. We want to investigate this carefully. Um, meanwhile, the U.S. ambassador in Mexico is running around trying to get whatever information he can. Um, and so there's a lot of miscommunication. The Mexicans are trying to find out what they can because they want to show, you know, what great allies they are of the United States. So they start arresting people and and possibly torturing them to get information. Um, but ultimately, uh, they end up not following a lot of leads that they could have and a lot of potential connections between Oswald and the Cubans just because it's it's too much of a risk. It's too much of a risk. They don't want to end up going to war over it. So the Johnson administration sort of decides not to pursue this in a way, I think, that really reflects some of these very complicated relationships that you're triangulating here. Again, U.S., Cuba, Mexico, trying to figure out what's in the U.S.'s best interest. I think it's fascinating that in the end, the Johnson administration would sort of say, you know what, let's back away from this a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised when I read that, too. I think it, it shows you know, the different levels that you know we assume that you know, what would be in the best U.S. interest is to find out who assassinated the president. But maybe that's that's not what people see as being our ultimate goal in protecting U.S. safety and security. Hmm. It's a really interesting, a really interesting moment. Of course, um, the next sort of flashpoint that emerges during this period that is something that everyone will be familiar with is the the massacre at Tlatelolco that happens on October 2nd, 1968, um, and is really... Um, a moment of culmination of this growing student protest that you detail um, and that the government really begins to fear, obviously, when this massacre happens. So can you talk about how you understand what happened at Tlatelolco and how it fits into the story? Yeah. So this is, like you said, one of the most familiar episodes um, of Mexican history in the 1960s. Uh, it's the one that by far has received the most attention in the historiography. Uh but when I was looking at the reports in the Mexican intelligence files, I kept seeing all these mentions of Cuba and of Cuban support for the students. And that's something I hadn't actually seen in any previous um, histories of the student movement or of the Tlatelolco massacre. And I think it's important because it, it goes to explain why the government overreacted so much and why they ultimately decided that the best way to resolve this student movement was through a massacre. And I think that the Cuban angle helps explain the the threat that they perceived, that they thought this might be part of an international communist conspiracy. They certainly made claims of that in public, but I think the intelligence reports show that those those weren't just 
claims that they actually perceived a threat. And so that's uh, my main contribution to this, you know, very well trod history of the student movement. But I think that that piece had been missing in earlier histories and it, it helps explain um, why there was such an outsized violent reaction to what largely had been a peaceful student movement. Right. And so I wonder um, what you think about the existence of those connections, the connections between the Cuban state and the Mexican student movement, which, as you mentioned, had really been already agitating before the Cuban revolution, um, together with various labor groups. You really have, you, you tell a story in which there are some ways in which the Mexican state kind of brings into being that which it fears most, right? Which is this um, big opposition movement comprised of students, of labor groups. Um, and so there's a sense in which the, the Mexican government's fear of this really brings in, and the, the violent repression that it unleashes because of this fear brings these movements into being. So were you able to get a sense of how much of a Cuban connection there actually was to these student groups? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, from what I could tell, and the, the interesting thing about the Cuban files um, is there was nothing from like September through November, 1968. Those files were just empty. And so, like I said, they, they did not fall into the ordinary category. Uh, and so it's really hard to know exactly what the Cubans were doing. Uh, my guess is that they were not providing that much support to the student movement. Uh, it would have been really risky for Castro to do so. Uh, I think he ultimately valued the connection with Mexico, however superficial it was. I don't think he saw the student movement as being promising enough to to unseat a government which really had provided a lot of useful opportunities for him. And so I, I doubt that, at least on an, a, on a national level, there was much support. There may have been individual Cuban officials in the embassy who provided maybe verbal support, encouragement. Um, but I think those were the reports in the Mexican intelligence files that I found the most questionable and the most suspicious. Mm -hmm. So you write that this is the point when we're, when we're getting into the era of Tlatelolco, that this is the point at which Mexico's Cold War, which you see as kind of bifurcated in an external and an internal Cold War, this is the era in which we kind of move from cold war to dirty work. So can you explain what you mean by that? And is Mexico different in the development of its dirty war than say some of the other countries and the, the dictatorships that we might know of as having waged dirty war in Latin America? It's hmm, a great question. And that's something actually I thought about a lot when I was writing the book, this difference between cold war and dirty war. And I do see dirty war as being a term that refers much more to an internal war, um, an attack by a state upon its own citizens. Uh, and so, like you said, I, I do see this transition in Mexico from a, some, a conflict that had been both foreign and domestic, internal and external, to something that largely turns internally and it turns upon its own people. Uh, whether this happens in a different way in Mexico, I don't know, because in, in the one sense, you know, Mexico wasn't, a military dictatorship like, a, you know, Argentina or Brazil or Chile, although it, it certainly wasn't democratic. Uh, and so I think 
that helped keep the that fact that Mexico wasn't an outright and obvious dictatorship um, helped keep the dirty war hidden for a lot longer than in other places. I wonder about the contribution of the story that you're telling here about this Cold War context into this dirty war. If sort of putting these two things together, the context of the fear of, of Cuba together with the support for Cuba tells us something different about how we've understood Mexico's dirty war, which, as you said, is the era of Tlatelolco. That's one of the things that we that we kind of know the most about from the historiography. Yeah, I think it, it does help put the more familiar episodes in a new context in in a wider context. And it helps to explain uh, both the, the domestic repression that took place at home. And it helps to explain Mexico's um, unique foreign policy, uh, why it was able to kind of thwart us efforts to a certain extent. Uh, And so I think the Cuba angle, it does help to provide Uh, new insight into why the Cold War was such a different battle in Mexico. So one of the things that I find most interesting as a kind of takeaway from this, if we go from the period, say, 1970 forward, you mentioned how, you know, Mexico's fear of this this communist infiltration, fear of Cuban support um, leads to this violent repression and the dirty war. But um, so the you mentioned that the there is there's never a successful new revolution, right? The state crackdown on this the uprisings that happen is successful. The student groups are not successful in ousting the government or even really bringing about massive changes. The the guerrilla groups are not successful either, and the pre manages to stay in power all the way until the year two thousand. So I wonder. Um, why you think that is sort of seeing what you've seen of the ability of the Mexican government to sort of manage this internal dissent. I wonder if you can speak to the legacy of what happens in the period after what happens in your book. How does the pre manage to do this? And despite its fear of this insurgency, despite its fear of, of the, the whole thing coming apart, it never happens and the pre stays in power. Yeah. That was something I really, I wondered about. And it was one of kind of the driving questions of my project is, like, how do we explain the priest's strength? How do we explain why this same group was able to stay in power for so long? And I think part of it, what my research contributes is it shows just how flexible the government was, um, especially under Lopez Mateos. I think, you know, the pre managed to stay in power almost in spite of Diaz Ordaz. I don't think he was a particularly effective leader. Um, and so a lot of what he unleashed could have potentially threatened um, the government's power. I think the Cuban revolution also could have potentially threatened stability in Mexico, but Lopez Mateos managed to kind of deflect that and use that to the advantage of, of the Mexican state. And then um, Echeverria was also, um, I think, much more strategic than, than Diaz Ordaz. And so he also managed to, to conduct a much more um, two-faced policy, a much more intricate balance of foreign and domestic policy of of cultivating the left while at the same time secretly repressing them. And so I think it helps explain just the the various levers that the Mexican government was able to, to use to maintain power. And that even though at times it certainly felt threatened, especially under Diaz Ordaz, there was this huge sense of threat 
and doom. Um, it actually was an extremely strong state that managed to weather these various threats. So do you feel like your argument contributes to um, the sense of the, the pre as what, what we came to know in the 1980s as the, the Leviathan on the Zocalo, right? The, this sort of the, that maybe one of the things that we haven't understood previously about the strength of the pre is precisely this flexibility. And that's one of the things that leads it into this kind of its ability to be so long lasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the flexibility is key. I think the nuance. I think a lot of Mexico's leaders were extremely bright. I think they were they were able to play off a lot of different angles, a lot of different sides at once. Try try and be something to everyone to to maintain um, loyalty among a, a, a bunch of different groups, both domestically and then also, you know, keep the United States on their side, keep Cuba on their side, and so it it really shows. Um, both on the individual leadership level, but just the strength and the flexibility of the state in general. I want to conclude by asking you two sort of um, more contemporary questions, um, because I know that you've been thinking about these questions recently. Um, I, I will end with a question about how understanding this period helps us understand what's going on now in Mexico with the drug war, which is something that you've written about recently. But first, um, I want to tack back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is the closure of these um, federal security files in the Mexican archives. Um, as you mentioned, they become opened once the PRI loses power. After 2000, mm-hmm. the public gets access to these files. And now, under Peña Nieto, the access, as you said, has been restricted. Um, how do you understand that? And what have people in Mexico been saying about that move and what it means for what historians are able to understand about this period? Yeah, so it, it does, I think, have a lot to do with when the PRI is in and out of power. And so once the PRI lost power in 2000, uh, the PAN comes in and Fox says, you know, we're not going to keep your secrets anymore. This is this is a new era. Um, there's no reason for us to keep the PRI secrets. And so they open these files and it gives an incredible new window onto what was going on throughout the 20th century in Mexico Uh especially the second half of the 20th century, in which there, there really aren't as many other official sources as you might see in other countries and other circumstances. Um, but then once uh, Peña Nieto was re-elected, the pre- or was elected and the PRI comes back into power, they almost immediately started a process of, of slowly, quietly restricting access to these sources. And it's it's still unclear exactly how many of the documents are available and to whom, um, what sort of access is, is possible. It, they have these things called uh, public versions, versiones públicas. Um, and so now instead of being able to see the original documents uh, in context, I think all you can get are versiones públicas in which they have gone through and selected documents based on certain people's names, uh, which is a much a much less um, accurate representation of the way the documents were collected originally. And uh, and so it's still unclear right now who has access and to what. And I think that's, um, it's a sign of, you know, they, they said the PRI argued we're a new party now. This is a new PRI. We aren't the same old dinosaurios who who are dominated throughout the 20th century. This is a new era. And I think the fact that they are, 
um, trying to hide their secrets again just shows that they aren't a new party and that they're, they're using a lot of the same mechanisms that they always did to maintain power. And so to that end, I wonder if, if we could just touch briefly on the security crisis and the internal fears in Mexico now, which now have to do with drug trafficking and the war on drugs and organized crime, as it, as it has been called over these last few years within Mexico. What parallels do you see between the Mexican state in the period that you're researching and today's Mexican state now back under pre-power? And, and sort of how, how does what we've learned from your book, is there anything we can take away to understand what's going on now? Well, among the parallels is this this very complicated interaction between domestic and foreign forces and influences that, you know, like the Cold War was both domestic and internal and local. Um, so is the drug war. You know, you have demand outside of Mexico for the most part, but there's also demand within Mexico. You have a lot of the weapons coming from the United States, a lot of the drugs coming from from South America. So you have foreign aspects, but the way that the Mexican government has pursued it is by targeting their own population. Yet again, they perceive the biggest threat as being an internal one. And this is partly just the fact that the Mexican government can't control what the United States does. They can't control U.S. demand. They can't control U.S. gun laws. Really, all they can do is focus on um, their own population and what they can do at home. And so it, it is this a similar combination of domestic and foreign issues and uh, limitations. And it's also interesting because just you see some of the same people who gained power throughout the Cold War um, on both sides now of the drug war. And so <laughs> some people who are in the DFS, this intelligence organization I've been talking about, um, were some of the original drug smugglers who, who used their um, authority, who used their power to set up some of the main trafficking rings. Um, and it's, it's just a pattern of people abusing their authority to for personal needs and it's i think it's what my research does is it shows you know by looking at these organizations some of the roots of this problem and also just the way that these this combination of internal and external dynamics can play out right well it's a fascinating book the book is mexico's cold war cuba the united states and the legacy of the mexican revolution we've been speaking to its author Renata Keller. Renata, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Christy. This has been a great fun. 